everyone. This is the Crime Cafe, your podcasting source of great crime, suspense, and thriller writing. I'm your host, Debbie Mack. Before I bring on my guest, I'll just remind you that the Crime Cafe has two ebooks for sale the nine book box set and the short story anthology. You can find the buy links for both on my website, debbiemack.com, under the Crime Cafe link. You can also get a free copy of either book if you become a Patreon supporter. You'll get that and much more if you support the podcast on Patreon, along with our eternal gratitude for doing so. I would also like to recommend Stitcher Premium if you're a fan of podcasts. If you like true crime or crime fiction, there are loads of podcasts out there for you. And with Stitcher Premium, you can listen to the exclusive archives from Criminology or bonus episodes from True Crime Garage. You can also listen ad-free to episodes of your favorite podcasts. I've subscribed, and for only $4.99 a month, it's nice to have ad-free entertainment. Just go to stitcher.com premium and use the promo code CRIMECAFE, that's one word, all caps, to try it out absolutely free for a month. Hi, everyone. Today, our guest is a criminologist who's lectured on crime for more than 25 years. She's a crime and court journalist whose work has appeared on educational websites, and her uh, resume as an instructor in the field is truly impressive. She's taught at law enforcement schools across the country, including one in Roswell, New Mexico, but never worked on the X-Files, as far as I know. She's also a true crime writer with at least two books to her credit. Our guest today is Judith Yates. Hi, Judith. Thank you for being here. Hey! Hey! Thank you for asking me. We're it's here. <laughs> We're <on>. here. <laughs> I don't believe. What made you choose to study criminology? I couldn't do math. I'm not a mathematician. Uh, it started out as a psych major, and uh, I found out by taking intro, intro, intro math which at the time my fifth grade nephew was helping me with the math um and i was just i felt very stupid and uh i comes to find out i have dyslexia with numbers which is called dyscalculia and i i cannot do math so you know nobody needs to hand over their checkbook to me because i'll totally destroy their account uh, but I found out there was a lot of math involved in psych and I was already feeling very bad about not being able to do math because everybody around me was saying, oh, that is so, you know, it's so simple. Why don't you get it? I turned to criminal justice, I think in part two, because my grandfather was a military veteran and he worked for Pinkerton as a security officer. And lo and behold, I find out later in life that my father had also worked security. So it was also in the blood. And then it was also, I just uh, can't do math. So it kind of fell into place. So Pinkerton, that's very interesting. A lot of uh, crime writers, well, at least one that I can think of worked as a Pinkerton, uh, Dashiell Hammett. <laughs> wow. Yeah, this was when Pinkerton was, you know, um, 
I mean, my grandfather caught burglars and, and chased down robbers and, you know, he was, he was very involved. And, um, of course I, you know, as a little kid, you really look up to that. And he's also, he was also a gunsmith. So he taught me about shooting. I was, I was plinking tin cans with a 22 before I learned to write, if that tells oh you anything. He used to pop it up on an old tire and let me shoot, so. Where did you do this? Where were you located at oh. the time? Oh, well, we weren't, you know, survivalist. We didn't have our own, you know, bunker or anything. He was just, he was just a gunsmith, so he was- I'm just wondering me. if you're out in the country I, uh, or what. <laughs> right, no. <laughs> I'm from San Antonio, Texas, and ah. he, yeah, he worked construction. So we would go out to the construction sites where he worked and he would show me these huge, huge trucks and machines that he worked on and we would take the guns and uh, he'd line up the cans and such. And so we would we would shoot that way. And then of course, as I got older, we'd go to the gun range and such. Hmm. And then I would like to sit and watch him clean guns and build guns. And I still like the smell of gun oil. It's very strange. But I still like the smell of it. Well, that's very interesting. Um, I've been reading your book, Bullied to Death. It has to be one of the saddest stories I've read in a long while. Uh, can you tell our listeners what the book is about? Sure. Uh, Bullied to Death is about a little girl named Cherokee Harriman. Just this adorable little preteen. And... She had some issues at home. She had some issues mentally and emotionally. And on top of that, she was the brunt of some bullying. And at times she could also be the bully herself. Now, how I came about learning about this case is I saw it on the news and it got me to thinking, okay, do kids really kill themselves because they are bullied? Or is there some other factor? Now, I was writing another book while I saw this on the news, and I said, I cannot take on another book. I am deep into this one. I'm driving to Memphis back and forth as often as I can to work on this one. But I kept feeling literally a nudge on the back of my left shoulder, like someone was poking me saying, look, look at this, look at this. So I delved into it. I will never write two books again at the same time. Um, but I looked into it. I talked to her parents. I talked to her family. If you do not want me to do this, I will not. They all agreed. I interviewed the family, looked at the files. And, and the story is that, that, you know, this little girl had a lot of issues and Issues that you know, I don't even know if an adult could take on, much less a child. I started uh, investigating these cases of where kids are killing themselves because of bullying. I interviewed professionals, uh, teachers, people who, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, doctors, and looked into this um, phenomena about kids who kill themselves, quote unquote, because of bullying. And I'm talking, you know, to these folks. And so I'm telling the story and the phenomena of kids killing themselves because of bullying through Cherokee. 
And the kid was a fighter. I mean, it is a sad story, but it is also a story of a kid who is fighting. You know, she's fighting internally, emotionally, and such a sweetheart of a kid. And she just keeps bouncing back and bouncing back. And I don't want to, I don't want to give away, you know, all of it because I don't do spoilers. Uh, but she's just this sweet, sweet girl has a tough part of her because she's a survivor and you know, she, she takes her own life. Now, did she take her own life accidentally? Did she do it on purpose? Was she bullied to death? Are kids killing themselves because they're bullied? And that's the whole premise of the book because in each book, I believe that it should tell a story. It shouldn't be this creepy guy took women off the street, chained them up in the basement and did horrible things. The end. I think we need to learn something out of true crime. I think there's a definite uh, thing to be learned from that book, from that situation, the one that you wrote about with the bullying. Um, did, did the people you spoke with uh, talk about the effects of technology and social media on all this and whether it, it was part of it? Definitely. And, and someone, and, and, you know, here's what's interesting is this, this woman was not a doctor, not a PhD. She said something so prolific that I've kept it like a talisman the whole time. She said, when we were kids and kids were mean at school, we could get away from it. We went home, we kind of licked our wounds. We might've cried. We might've told our parents, but we got away from it. Kids today cannot because they go home, they get on the computer, they look at their phone, and it's still there. Now, I'm not blaming social media, because everything new is a two-edged sword. Everything that's good for our society is a two-edged sword. I mean, look at all the things that you can do online now. For example, this podcast. And look at the things that can happen on Facebook. We reconnect with people we haven't seen in years, we can stay in touch with family and friends, but on the other coin, there's also cyberbullying. There's people taking advantage of good-natured people. And Cherokee lived for going online, like her peers. And here are, you know, mean things being said. Um, and, you know, she's, she's not the most popular kid. So... She wants to be, she wants to be like everybody else. The family just doesn't have the money or resources. And, you know, she's reminded of that. But Cherokee could also dish it out. And one thing that I thought was kind of funny was on one line, you know, she, she always had a different boyfriend. Now she wasn't promiscuous, don't get me wrong. But on, you know, one week she would say, I love him so much. He is the man. I want to marry him. I love him. And I knew it. Four or five days later, she says, he is a little bitch. You know? <laughs> so, you know, she's just this typical little kid. But yes, um, I saw that media did play a part in it, only because it plays a part in all teenagers' lives. Indeed, it does, yeah. Um, and her very, very best friend finds out about her death through a text. Yeah. You know, her mom and dad find out she has stabbed herself through a text. There was so much going on there 
with people kind of missing connections and things or, or kind of knowing what was happening but not knowing where to go. You really build a kind of suspense in there that's great. And, and even though you know she's not, you know, going to make it, it's like you want her to. <laughs> right, right. You, you start kind of cheering on for this kid. Yes, it's, it's almost as if it's like watching a tragedy, knowing the ending, and just still feeling that that desire for the person to win. Um, let's see. Yeah. Uh, what authors do you like to read most? Oh, my gosh. Um, Where do you draw your list. inspiration? Well, oh, wow. That's, that's hard, too. Uh, when I'm writing and I'm researching, I don't read anything else simply because I don't want it to, to kind of color my, my kaleidoscope there. I love Lowell Caulfield. I think he's one of the, the uh, best true crime authors out there. I love his research. I love the way he writes. Um, Kathy Scott is such a sweetheart. She's such a good person. I admire her work. And I loved her book on the murder of Tupac. I thought it was very well researched. And that's, you know, it's, you hear me keep saying that word because that's, that's the crux of the whole true crime, true crime gamut. Um, Eric Larson, I love his work just because of, of the way he writes. And let's see, I'm looking at else who else I have on my on my bookshelf here. Gavin De Becker. I love his I love his books. Because it's more about proactive being safe than reactive. And it's truth, you know, like for example, in one of his books he talks about all this business of that happened after 9-11, how the media was scaring us more than we should have been scared. Yes, yes. Um, the role of the media is, is very interesting in all this, too. Um, what, what do you see as your, is your role as a true crime writer? I think we need to tell a story. I don't believe in this, again, writing, uh, you know, he buried bodies in the basement and he was gory and this is going to scare you and keep you up at night. I don't believe in stories like that. And I think Anne Rule set the precedent of let's learn from this instead of being gory and freaking you out. Because there's really nothing to be learned from being gory and freaking you out. That's a name I hear all the time, Anne Rule, from other true crime writers. Yeah. Right. And I just, you know, true crime authors, again, since, since POD and, and self-publishing came out, everybody suddenly was going to be an author. And I always, always insist, just because you can write a book doesn't mean you should. It's sort of like, you know, just because you read about how to defuse a bomb online doesn't mean you should try it. Because when you're writing true, I'm sorry, true crime specifically, you are holding these people's hearts in your hand, meaning the victims and the victim survivors. You're holding their hearts, their minds, their lives. I want you to think of the most 
horrific, sad, challenging thing that ever happened to you in your life that still affects you, now you are telling a perfect stranger and you want them to honor it and use it to help others. You are handing that over to them to be told to everyone. And it's like anything else with true crime, people either love your work or they hate your work. If you look on, you know, like on Amazon and Goodreads, when people uh, review your stuff, they either love it or they hate it. Uh, you'll have two or three typos and right away you're a horrible editor. But anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I, you know, I, I write for professional editors all the time, but anyway, uh, yeah. I, and I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about victim survivors here, the most horrific thing that could ever happen to someone. And you're, you're holding that in your hands and you best, you know, you best respect it. Um, you can't just say, Oh, I think I'll write about, you know, the, the, I don't know, the South Texas killer and how many people he killed and oh my God, how many people he hung up by the foot and, and stripped and <laughs> killed and all of this. Okay, everybody that he killed had a family and friends that loved him. And do you think they want that out there about their loved one? You know, so yeah. I, I think we need to think about that when, when we write anything that has to do with anyone being murdered or hurt. I couldn't agree with you more. That's a very important point about thinking about the effect of what we write on the people we're writing about, if we're writing about true events. Um, I run into this issue a lot with documentary. Uh, I've taken documentary classes and the same kinds of issues come up. How will you connect with the people that you're writing about? How will you portray them in the way that best serves the story and their, you know, everyone's interests, I guess, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, definitely. definitely. Okay, good, great. Yeah, um, you, you also have another book called She is Evil. What is that one about? That one is about Leah Ward, who is from a little tiny town in Tennessee, and Ijaz Ahmad, Ijaz came into this country where he had promised his mother he was going to make a life for himself. And he was very successful, very likable, and he happened to be a Pakistani national. And Leah meets Ijaz through the kindness of his heart and also because his religion dictates to be kind to others, and he is Muslim. He helps Leah get on her feet, and even though he's seeing all these red flags and his friends and his family are saying, get rid of her, she's taking advantage of you, she is not a nice person, he still insists on helping her. The last thing he did for her was an act of kindness. He gave her a bunch of money, he took her to a very nice hotel downtown Memphis and said, okay, you know, here's a bunch of money to take care of yourself and your children. 
uh, here's a nice hotel to stay at until you get on your feet. Thank you. Goodbye. And she ended up killing him. And I wrote that book because I got so tired of hearing people talk about people from the Middle East as if they were all woven from the same cloth. You know, evil, killers, hated America, and particularly those of the Muslim faith, uh, and how the religion dictates killing Americans and hating everyone and uh, hating everybody that wasn't Muslim. And here's this um, so-called Christian white female that murders Ijaz in a horrific way. She stole everything he had. She just about cleaned out his bank account. She lied every time she opened her mouth. And out of the kindness of his heart, and because his religion dictated it, he gave her every chance that he could. And mm -hmm. she still murdered him. And you know, as much as much that I dug and dug and dug, I could not find anything bad on his eyes or anyone that said anything bad about him. He was just a good guy that met the wrong person at the wrong time. Hmm. And even when he met her, he moved her into one of his houses. That was one of his businesses is he had rental property. And he told her, you know what? I don't feel safe with you living here because it's a bad neighborhood. So he put her in his house and he said, but as Muslim, I can't be under the same roof with a woman I'm not married to. So he moved out with a friend and gave her his house. And just, you know, and meanwhile, she is taking everything because he also had an import store of, of things from Pakistan. She took everything he had and sold it to the pawn shop. He had a ring that was worth, I don't even know how many thousands and thousands of dollars because his brother was a jeweler in Pakistan and she got 20 bucks for it at the, at the pawn shop. Oh, jeez. Boy, talk about being taken advantage of. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's nothing. Um, but again, the, the backstory is, you know, the, the, Muslim faith is not all about the kill people and become, you know, God and have 20 virgins and hate America. You know, not everyone is like that. It's sort of like taking Tim McVeigh, who blew up the, the Murrah building in Oklahoma. Okay, Tim McVeigh was white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and professed to be a Christian. It's like taking Tim McVeigh and saying, well... I guess all white males with blue eyes are going to blow up federal buildings. We can't do that. We can't take a, a small handful of, of people and say everybody is like that. And that's what I was trying to explain in the book. And one of the things that I thought was interesting is the prosecutor told me that they were afraid to go to trial because after 9-11, the anger and animosity toward people from that country, they kind of lump it all together, and him being Muslim. Now, what kind of justice is that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
that was a very bad time right after 9-11 from a legal standpoint. I was, I was very worried. <laughs> um, I, have, uh, I have a very good friend that lived in Washington at the time that she, uh, she's now in Abu Dhabi, but she uh, had lived in Kuwait. Her, her father was Kuwait, Kuwaiti and her mother was German. She looks more Kuwait. She didn't leave the house for fear. Mm. But yet, when she was finally uh, Americanized, when she was legally became a citizen, she cried through the entire process. And on the way home, she was so happy and proud. Well, that's so, wonderful. I mean, but yet afraid to go out of her own house. That's, that's awful. <laughs> See, that's awful. Exactly. So that's kind of the, the message I was trying to give with that book is, you know, don't take a handful, a tiny handful of extremists and turn it up, you know, turn them into everybody from that quote unquote, that country. <laughs> yes. That country. Yeah. Just that country. All you know, one country. Those people. Those people <laughs> over there. Yeah. You know how they are. Right. <laughs> uh, that's kind of, what I'm doing with that book, but Leah Ward, uh, boy, she was, uh, yeah, she's an interesting character. Interesting. So, wow. She's bad at me. So is there anything else? Let's see. What are you working on now? Ah, the book I, I've just finished the first draft is a history of female bank robbers going from the 1800s from the very first recorded female bank robber up until today. And the, it, it also has interesting cases. Uh, the oldest bank robber on record was in her 80s. She had, to, <laughs> she had to lean on her walker so she could lift the gun. And the youngest was 14. Um, there's, there's some really, there was a woman that had one arm and she was waving a steak knife. Jeez. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's so, fascinating. You know, and, and then there's also some very serious cases where there was a, a pimp that had, you know, several prostitutes under him, and they collectively decided that bank robbing was far more, you know, lucrative and a lot less work. And uh, so they just all started bank robbing. And so wow. he became the pimp of bank robbers. So <laughs> bank robbers, what a proud right. title. <laughs> and he's sending them out on the street. Meanwhile, here's, here's even, he's wearing an ankle bracelet, bracelet from being on uh, parole. So oh my it, gosh. It, and it gets crazier, but then there's also some very sad cases. Uh, and there's also some very dark cases. Uh, but it's, it, and at the same time, it discusses the so, uh, social and political impact on females throughout history. And in the beginning, in the 1800s, a lot of the women posed as men to commit these robberies. And then it makes a turnaround, and you see women posing as men to commit these robberies. And, of course, I discussed the 70s, um, you know, peace, love, tune in, tune out, uh, rob a bank for the power of the people. Um, 
so there's, you know, there's, there's some really interesting stories as well. So I'm really excited about that because it's the first time I've ever done something like that. A lot of research. I'm assuming Bonnie and Clyde figure in there somewhere. No, Bonnie no? Parker never robbed a bank. Nope. Ah. So this whole we rob banks isn't exactly. Oh my God. <laughs> 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 he started on that horrible movie. I'm a Bonnie and Clyde aficionado. <laughs> I mean, if there's something you want to know about that case, ask me. But please don't bring up that stupid, stupid, horrible movie. <laughs> Nothing. No movie has actually, actually depicted. Look, I'm punching. I'm punching my desk. No movie has actually depicted the two Bonnie and Clyde. None of them. Well, I'll tell you. And um, Faye Dunaway I, I doesn't so look a damn bit like Bonnie uh, Parker. No, none of them do. By the way, I saw the new Harriet Tubman movie last night. I was so disappointed. Really? Oh, so disappointed. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, but I have a recommendation. Go see Knives Out. It's fantastic. What's it called? Knives Out. It's a murder really? mystery. It's a murder mystery, okay. and it's funny, and it's great. And it's got Daniel Craig doing a southern accent, American accent. Oh, I love Daniel Craig. He's fantastic. so hot. Especially <laughs> in that little, little mankini in the ocean, coming up out of the ocean. <laughs> I never understand what goes on in a James Bond movie. I have no idea. Oh, James Bond. Oh, when well. he comes up out of that ocean, yeah. <laughs> James Bond does all sorts of impossible things. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. Like coming out of the ocean in that mankini and none of, none of those women look. <laughs> you know, none of those women on that ocean look. No, no. It just, it's just everyday business for James. Oh, James. Mm -hmm. Well, is there anything else you'd like to say before we finish up? Yes. Um, hold on, I gotta. Sorry, I just I just took a bite of a ginger snap when you said. Um, no problem. <laughs> every every one of my books in the back uh, in the book itself has a glossary of where you can go for more information. For example, with Cherokee Harriman's book, uh, "Bullied to Death." There are information um, lists, or I'm sorry, there is a list of resources for information on cyberbullying, bullying, uh, mental illness in juveniles, fire setting in children. And every book that I write, a portion of the book goes to a nonprofit organization in the victim's name. That's fantastic. That's excellent. Well, we have to learn from bad. If we don't learn from bad, we're going to continue to go forward in bad. So, um, and I, I learned that from a dear friend of mine named Esther Loeb. She was a Holocaust survivor. And that's one of the things that she taught me is we have to learn from the past um, and make good of it. So I, uh, I tried to do that with the books. I think that's a wonderful thing that you're doing. Thank then. you. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on, Judith. Thank you so much. Thank for you being so here. much. Thank you for asking me. Oh, certainly. It was my pleasure. Uh, before we go, let me just remind you that the Crime Cafe Nine Book Set and Short Story Anthology can be purchased at any retailer listed on my website.
debbiemack.com. You can also get copies of each if you become a Patreon supporter. If, you've, if you're watching the video or listening to the podcast, look for the link to the Patreon page below. And please leave a review of the podcast, if you would, on the podcast channel of your choice. Thank you so much. And with that, be advised that our next guest will be June Trock. That'll be in two weeks. So until then, take care and happy reading.